Hallelujah. Greetings from uh, our, the church in London, Ontario, Canada. And my wife is here. Say hello, everybody. So, tonight I want to speak about the purpose of prayer. The purpose of prayer. It's, the PowerPoint's supposed to come on. It will come on. Hey, that's great. Praise God, you know. We are going to look at the purpose of prayer and address the question, why do we pray? Apostle Paul often requested prayer for himself, for his co-laborers, and for his ministry. Here are a few examples when Paul requested prayer. Brethren, pray for us. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Another time, continue earnestly in prayer, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the mystery of Christ, which I'm also in chains. Not only did Paul request prayer for himself, but he often referred to praying for others. This also we pray that you may be made complete. Do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. And so we see Paul is intertwining prayer in many different areas. Jesus himself continually encouraged his disciples to pray and to pray about very specific things. Jesus exhorts us, the harvest truly is plentiful. But the labors are few. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors in his harvest. The question that arises are, why do we pray? And what is the actual purpose of prayer? And what happens if we fail to pray? How we answer these questions will determine whether or not we actually pray and what form our prayers will take. Do you know many Christians do not spend much time at all in prayer? Because of the way they answer the question, why do we pray? What's the purpose of prayer? Some people pray as if God doesn't know their needs. Prayer then becomes merely a reciting a list of needs to bring to God's attention to ensure he doesn't forget them. This results in prayer becoming a mundane repetition of a list of needs and wants. In other words, prayer will become, well, I'll repeat tonight what I repeated last night. It is obvious from Scripture that God is omniscient. So we do not pray to inform God of our needs or to remind Him of our troubles as if He might forget them. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. So we see here that we don't pray to tell God what our needs are because he doesn't know them, or to remind them in case he forgets. God already knows our needs and every detail of our lives infinitely better than we do. So we don't pray to tell God things that he needs to know. Some people pray as if God is uncaring and that they have to overcome God's reluctance to help or heal or save or bless. Their prayers sound more like pleading to an uncaring master than petitioning to a loving, generous father. However, Jesus portrayed quite a different picture of our heavenly father. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
I remember when I went on my first mission trip, I was preparing for it. It was 1994 with Brother Robert Ewing to Romania. And, uh, but a month before, we, I got together with Robert and the people who were going to go on the mission trip with us, and we all prayed together. I was, you know, kind of, this is like, you know, 20, 22 years ago. And so we all got together and we were praying, and, and then when I started to pray, I was saying, Oh, God, please save the people. Oh, God, please save the people. And I was just very intense about that. And after we finished praying, there's a prophetic brother there, Harold Fox. I don't know, some of you know him? And uh, a redneck from Texas. And he said, you know, Howard, the way you prayed really tickles me. Now, if he said it moved him, I would be good, right? Or it really stirred me up, that'd be fine. But it really tickled me. I kind of felt a little bit kind of like self-conscious, like, what do you mean it really tickled me? He said, well, there you are pleading with God to save people. He goes, that's as ridiculous as pleading with me to eat ice cream. And you could tell by his girth that he enjoyed eating ice cream. <laughs> and so he, he prayed. He said, God, why does Howard pray that way? And he felt the Lord said to him, he just doesn't know any better. <laughs> and so when we pray to God, like, oh, God, please, we're actually distorting the very image of our Father in heaven. Because it's his good delight to answer us. It's his good delight to heal. It's his good delight to bless. Some people pray as a means of winning God's favor so he will answer the requests. This is a works-based concept of prayer where we earn God's favor in order to have our petitions answered. Prayer becomes a meaningless religious ritual comprised of a mixture of superstition and hollow repetitive prayers that in many ways mimic the pagan concept of God. And when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathen do, that they think that they will be heard for the many prayers. So some people keep praying and praying and praying, kind of trying to win God's favor, that finally says, okay now, I'll do it for you. You know, it's like the Catholics, I'm not Catholic, I'm Jewish, but from what I understand, the Catholics, they would just do their Hail Marys or go through their prayer beads. You know, now, it says vain repetition. Now, we're going hallelujah, praise you, hallelujah. That's not vain repetition because that's filled with a joy and excitement of the Lord. Vain repetition is where you keep repeating the same thing over and over again, thinking that if you finally get the quota, God says, okay, you've won my favor. Prayer is a place where we can share our deepest delights and heaviest burdens with God as our loving Father. Some mistakenly see prayer like going to a store to place an order so they can receive the requests. They think that they are responsible for deciding what they want and need and then simply placing their order. These people see God as a divine vending machine that if they press the wrong selection, they're going to receive something other than that, they would, be, that would be helpful or good. Such people say things like, be careful of what you ask for, as if God just mindlessly gives us anything we ask for. This causes prayer to become a place of uncertainty, where instead of joyfully coming to God with our needs, we are anxious that we may not be asking for the correct thing, or maybe overlooking something we need to pray for. You ever heard people say, be careful what you pray for? That's a misconception of the character of God. 
That's a misconception of prayer. And all of a sudden, prayer becomes anxious. What happens if I don't pray for the right thing? What happens if I ask for the wrong thing? You know, that concept of God is just a dumb concept. It's like my son coming to me. He's a five-year-old. Dad, can I have some cyanide capsules? I said, well, I don't really want to give them, but if you ask, I guess I'll have to give them to you. However, Jesus taught us that God, as our loving Father, only gives good things to his children when they ask. Or if, you, if he asked for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? If you ask God, he will never give you something that is destructive to your life. Never. Now to him, before I read this, I'll tell you a story. It was about 1996 and I was driving in my car and I was praying and, and this thought came to me. You know, what happens if I don't know what I need? Or what happens if I pray but I don't pray fully what I need? Is my inability to pray exactly what I need going to hinder God? Because, you know, if you get into kind of the extreme faith movement where they say, you got to claim it or you don't get it. So I thought, wow, what happens? See, there's things I don't know what I need to pray for. All of a sudden I go, God, i got to make sure that I ask for the right things and I ask for fully the right things and, and I, I can't forget anything. Otherwise, I'm going to be kind of caught short. And as I was thinking that, I prayed and, and this scripture came to me. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, as Ephesians 3.20. Paul's words greatly encourages us that God is not limited by our ability to express our needs or even to fully recognize all that he wants us to do. When we pray, he fills in the blanks and he adds the extra lines so his perfect will can be done in our lives. Isn't that wonderful? The word exceeding abundantly above can be translated infinitely above. Isn't that wonderful? That he can do, he will give us infinitely more than we can ask for, that we can even think of. He's going to do things we can't even think of. That was encouraging. God is not limited by how perfectly we pray or express ourselves or how completely we understand our own needs. While this truth is a source of great comfort and confidence, God, it actually reinforces the question, then why do we pray? If you're not confused yet, see, you know, I teach like every Jewish person teaches. I want to ask the question first so you'll be attentive to the answer. See, if you're not thinking there's a question that needs to be answered, you're not going to listen to the answer. So why do we pray? The answer to our question, is this PowerPoint working good? Okay, great. The answer to our question as to why we pray begins in Genesis one twenty six. Then God said, let us make man in our own image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let them have dominion over all the earth. When God created 
mankind, he gave him authority over all the earth. Therefore, authority over the earth does not lie with God or with Satan, but with man, and that has never changed. Our choices still matter. However, we must understand what it means that man has authority over all the earth. Although God gave him authority over the earth, it does not mean that God created man with the freedom or the ability to carry out all that he wishes. Mankind is a limited, created being meant to rely on God's power and strength and the leading of the Holy Spirit. There is a a distinct difference between authority and ability. Authority means one has the freedom to choose what one wants to do. Ability means one has the strength power and resources to carry out one's choices. I'll give you an example. Let's say you own a vacant piece of property. That property is yours, and you can decide what happens with that property. But you may not have the resources, the finances, to actually build something on it. But you can choose who you want to build on. I say, brother, I think you're a good brother. I'll let you build a house on my property. And I like you because you've got lots of money, so you can do that. (laughs) See, I have the authority, but I don't have the ability. So by saying, this is my property, but I'll let you build on it. So God has given us authority, but not the power to do whatever we want. That's where people get confused. People think that whatever we pray, our prayers on their own has power. Our prayer on their own has no power. It's who we agree with. Remember it says in James that you ask and don't receive because you ask amiss. So if you ask amiss... God doesn't answer, and then you don't get the prayers answered. God has given each person the freedom to choose, and those choices will affect the direction of our lives. God judges a person not only by his actions, but even more by his choices and the intent of his heart. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In other words, he already chose something in his heart. God judges not by our actions, but even much more by our choices. You may want to steal something, but you're afraid of being arrested. But you're already a thief in your heart. And I know everybody's encouraged. I know I just encourage people so much. Yeah, that's why I want to come here once a year. So, (laughs) the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is a story about choices people made and how their choices shaped their lives. Some chose to submit to the will of God, while others chose to act contrary to his will. The Bible is filled with examples of the consequences of those whose choices oppose God's will and the blessings received by those who chose to submit to God's will. The first choice that man made is recorded in the Bible in Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve were confronted by the serpent. They had to choose whom they would believe and whose words they would act upon. God had given Adam his commandment pointing to the abundance of his generosity, provision, and blessings. And God, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, of every tree of the garden you may freely eat freely. The first commandment he said is you have choice. He didn't say you better eat of every tree. 
He says, I command you that you have freedom to choose to eat whatever tree you want and as much as you want. It speaks about God's generosity. The very first commandment speaks of God's generosity. Following God's instructions for Adam to enjoy all of God's blessings came one simple warning. But of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then Satan appeared in the form of a serpent with the words that both maligned God's character and contradicted his words. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. One may ask, why did God allow Satan into the garden to tempt Adam and Eve? The answer is simple. One cannot freely choose unless one has a choice. This is not deep philosophy. They had God's word and they had Satan's word. And they had to choose whom they would believe and whom they would obey. Unfortunately, Adam and Eve chose to agree with Satan's words and gave him building rights to establish his kingdom on this earth. Without Adam's choice to believe and act upon Satan's words, Satan would have been powerless to do anything on the earth. If Adam and Eve had not chosen to agree with him, Satan would be powerless. He couldn't do anything on the earth. Zero. We can see the importance of agreement and how one choice changed the course of history for mankind with devastating consequences. Every day, even as believers, we are confronted with the choices of whom we will believe, either God and his word or the lies that fill this world. Many times you see Christians and you see their lives are just not fruitful. They're just not moving forward. You go, why? Because they're not choosing to continually to agree with God. That's why. They agree with God sometimes, like There'll be an altar call to come forward. Oh, God, I've re- I repent. I've, I've been acting really bad. And then Monday morning, they make other choices. The primary battle is for truth and our willingness to choose to believe and embrace the truth. For you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. When we choose to believe and act upon the truth, it results in freedom and puts us on the path of living a life that is eternally fruitful. I am the vine. And you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For you can do without me. You can, without me you can do nothing. God in his sovereignty, omniscience, omnipotence and love. Spoke the first messianic prophecy recorded in the Bible to Adam and Eve. Just as they came face to face. With the horrible consequences of their choices. As they saw the consequences of what they had chosen. He spoke these words to them. In order to give them hope. God pointed to Jesus' sacrificial death at Calvary that would result in redeeming mankind from the curse of sin. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The very first messenger prophecy. As Adam and Eve confronted realizing that their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren and great-great-great-great-grandchildren, everyone would die. Everyone would die. They would grow old. They would become sick. Many would die from horrible deaths, violent deaths. Many would do terrible things, all because of that. But he spoke that first messianic prophecy right in the midst of their consequences, saying, but the seed of the woman will come and crush 
the head of the serpent, the seed of the serpent. But it will cause him to have his heel crushed at Calvary. Isaiah 1, 18 to 20. Isaiah 1, 18 to 20. And now, come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. One of the central themes of the Bible is God asking appealing and even pleading with people to choose to agree with him so he can his will could be done in their lives and they can be redeemed and blessed come now and let us reason together says the lord though your sins are like scarlet they shall be as white as snow if you are willing and obedient you shall eat the good of the land joshua a great man of god who god used to lead israel into the promised land and conquer the enemies of God, was a man who did not only choose to agree with God, but also challenged all Israel to do the same. And if it seems good, evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God had given has given each of us the authority to decide whom we will submit to and whose will is going to be manifest in our lives, whether it's the flesh, the devil, or God. Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Joshua was powerfully used by God because he chose to submit fully to the will of God. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Prayer is one of the central ways in which we come into agreement with the will of God. Before we embark on any course of action, the first thing we should do is submit our will to God's will and come to him in prayer and ask for his guidance and blessings. Jesus is our good shepherd, and if we invite him to, he will lead us. To experience the power of God in our lives, we must make clear, concise consistent decisions to yield to God and agree with him in prayer. Since God gave man dominion over the earth, he is always seeking those men and women who are willing to come into agreement with his will so that his will could be done on earth. An incredible thought to contemplate when it comes to prayer is that if we fail to agree with God in prayer, it will hinder God's will from being done not only in our lives, but in the lives of others and even in the nations. When Jesus pointed out that the harvest truly is plentiful, but the labors are few, his first instructions were not to go out to the different nations and preach the gospel, but to pray. Therefore, pray the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. This not only points out the importance of prayer, but underlines that without prayer, the Lord of the harvest will not send out labors. God is wanting to send out labors. He wants to, but he says, who will agree with me so I can send out labors? Because the authority doesn't lie with God, but with men. Genesis 22, 16 to 18 Genesis 22, 16 to 18. And he said, by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you've done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son, 
Blessing, I will bless you. And multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of heaven and as the sand of the sea which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you obeyed my voice. An example of the critical importance of us coming into agreement with God's will and specifically coming into agreement with God's will in prayer can be seen in the life of Abraham. When Abraham took Isaac, his only son by his wife Sarah, and offered him up on Mount Moriah as a whole offering unto God, this was not only an act of faith and obedience, it was truly an act of worship and prayer unto God. Can you imagine any time that someone would go to the temple to make a sacrifice? They didn't say, okay, here's one of my sheep, see ya. They would take that and the priest would sacrifice it. And that man would say, God, this is yours. This is for you. This is for you. And so when Abraham took Isaac and put him on that altar, he was praying and said, Isaac is yours. To fully comprehend the significance of what Abraham did, we must understand that God did not say, because you had faith in me, all the nations of the, uh, shall be blessed, but because you've done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Abraham, in his act of worship and prayer, gave up not only his son Isaac, but dedicated all his descendants to the will of God, which would ultimately result in the birth of his son, Jesus, in the lineage of Abraham, to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, some people say, well, God you know, asked him to, but he didn't really offer him up. He did offer him up. You read in Hebrews 11, it says he offered up his son. See, where we get, in the English, we, we say, God said, make him a burnt offering. But that's not really what it says in the Hebrew. The Hebrew word really is whole offering. That, because most of the sacrifices were burned, right? So they all were smoking, right? You know, but the thing is, you like that? It wasn't supposed to be funny. But anyways, but, but the thing is that, well, so what was different about that than the trespass offering, or the sin offering, the peace offering? They're all burned. The difference is all those other offerings, the offerer or the priest kept something for themselves. But the whole offering was all for God. It'd be like you take your prize heifer, and you go and you take it and you kill it, and the entire animal is burned before God. You don't even get one hamburger. Not one hamburger. So he didn't say to him, he said to him, take Isaac and offer him up as a whole offering. So when Abraham went up to Mount Moriah, it was Isaac's son. When he came down, it was God's son. i got to figure out where I am. Could you do the next slide so I know where I am now? Okay. Jesus is identified clearly as the son of Abraham. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
the person referred to by God as in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed is not Isaac, but Jesus, even as Paul stated Galatians 3.16. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promise made. He does not say, and to the seeds as of many, but as of one to your seed who is Christ. He says, because you withhold, he did not withhold your son, all the nations will be blessed. Why? Because then Jesus could come and die for our sins. It wasn't just because he believed God. It's because you did not withhold your son and you gave me the authority to use him for my purposes. That's why. You got to figure where I am now. Okay, good. Thanks. She's keeping me on track. You're doing a great job. Without you, I'd be lost. You know, unless Abraham agreed with God's will, Jesus could not have come into the world as a son of man through the offspring of Abraham. God would have had to find another person who would believe and agree with him to surrender his descendants to the will of God. He would have had to look for someone else. But I know Abraham's very happy that he said he didn't withhold his own son. See, if Abraham had not given his son Jesus, I mean, give his son Isaac to God, God couldn't give us his son Jesus through the seed of Abraham. You realize that? He couldn't have. Because the authority didn't lie with God. It, lie, it, lied, it lay with Abraham. But Abraham said, I don't understand this. But God, if you're asking me to do this, here is my son Isaac and all the descendants of Isaac. Throughout the Bible, we read of men and women who surrendered to the will of God and came into agreement with God so his will could be done on the earth. We read of stories of faithful men and women such as Rahab and Ruth and David and many others in the lineage of Jesus who came into agreement with God their obedient, surrender, their obedient surrender result in the birth of the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God. Do you know all along, it wasn't that every descendant of Abraham was in the lineage of Jesus. Abraham gave Isaac, then God, and Isaac then submitted, and then each one, and you find this thread of people who are faithful to submit to God's will. And the last person... Who was the last person that submitted to God's will to, to be, so that Jesus could be born? Mary. Isn't that what it says? The angel appeared to Mary and he said, you're going to have a son. He's going to be called the son of God. But she says, but I, I, I'm not married yet. And, and he says, it'll be a miracle. The power of God will do this. And when she said yes, she had to contemplate the possibility of being put to death. People said she's a fornicator. She had the possibility of her family disowning her, of Joseph divorcing her, of all those terrible things. But she made a decision. She said yes. She said yes. That was the last person. And the chain was complete. And Jesus, the son of God, could be born as the son of man, the son of Abraham. See the importance of prayer. And you say, well, when did Mary pray? She prayed when she said yes. That was her prayer. 
She said, let it be done according to your word. Okay, let's see where I am now. Why did Jesus Christ come as a son of, as, come as a human being in the form of a descendant of Abraham? He could then exercise the authority God had given man. When Jesus Christ, oops, uh, sorry, uh, did I skip something here? Okay, yeah, sorry. Why did Jesus Christ, the Son of God, have to come to be incarnated as a son, uh, as a man, to be the Savior of all mankind? Why couldn't he appear as an angel, or appear as God, or as an angel? Jesus came, was came incarnated as a man for many reasons, but one very important reason is only a man could exercise the authority that God had given man when he pronounced him, let them have dominion over the earth. See, if, if Jesus came as the Son of God only, he couldn't exercise the authority. But he came as a man to exercise the authority that God had given men. You know, by the way, the PowerPoint, I normally have it coming one point at a time. I'm not sure why it all comes together. Maybe you've got a different program or something. It's okay. We'll look at that later for the next, tomorrow morning. Through one man's disobedience, sin and death came into the world. So it had to be through one man's complete obedience and agreement with the will of God that salvation and redemption could come into the world. For by it, one man's offense Death reigned through the one. Much more those who received abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners, by also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. In other words, Jesus, as the Son of Man, came into agreement with the will of God that released the will of God on this earth so we could be saved. He could never have done that if he only came as the Son of God. Now, there's other reasons, too, because he had died for his sins, but I'm just giving you that main point that I'm trying to bring up. When Jesus Christ came as a human being in the form of a descendant of Abraham, he could then exercise the authority God had given to man. When Jesus Christ came as a son of man, it was the first time in human history that a man came into full agreement with the will of God. Only then could the Father's will be done on earth as it is done in heaven, and his kingdom could come upon the earth. As a result, Satan was defeated and the way of salvation was opened to all mankind. Jesus Christ exercised full power as the Son of God and full authority as the Son of Man. The gates of hell were not able to prevail and the results were the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, it says the gates of hell will not prevail. You know, some people think about that. See, gates are not an offensive weapon. You don't say, well, there's a thief here. Let me grab a door and hit him. See, a, a gate is something when you're on the defensive. So Jesus says, as the church, we are to be on the offensive, and the devil is to be on the uh, defensive. And it says, the gates of hell will not prevail. And I always think about that in terms of, we can see people saved, that those gates of hell cannot prevail, and we can break through that and see people come to Christ. But there's another aspect. When Christ was in hell for those three days... The gates of hell couldn't hold them back. And as the, the power of the Son of God and the authority of the Son of Man, those gates were blown wide open and he came out resurrected as a glorious Savior. The gates of hell could not prevail and hold them back. 
If God has given mankind authority on the earth and our agreement with the will of God is so essential, then how could God be sovereign, right? Well, then if we, our choices make a difference and without our choices, God can't do those things, then how can God still be sovereign? Man exercises authority through his ability to choose and specifically to choose who or what he will agree with, they will agree with. Man does not have the free to, madam, man does not have free will, but free choice. There's a great difference between having the freedom to choose to do something and the ability and the power to actually carry out one's choices. Each person has freedom to choose who or what they will agree with. One can choose to agree with the devil and reap destruction in their lives and the lives of those around them. An example is that of Hitler, who chose to use his position of leadership to advance a world war that brought horrendously cruel deaths to countless millions of innocent people. But when the time came, his reign crumbled and he was powerless to stop it. You know, he made choices, and to a certain point, those choices... And you know, it was very possible, Dale, he could have won, right? There was a point at the beginning of the war that he could have won and defeated the free world. It was getting that bad. But you know what's very interesting about what were the downfall? It was Hitler's own choices. He made foolish choices. And it reminds me of the story of Haman. And his, own, his downfall was his own doing. And if you study World War II, there were a number of decisions that Hitler made that caused his, his uh, reign to be destroyed. He himself was the author of his own destruction. And he was powerless to stop it. Even though he had this huge army, when the time came, he, had, he still had the choice to do what he wanted. But God said, enough's enough. And I believe it's the prayers of Christians who brought it down. That even though he had free choice, he didn't have the power to continue. And God says, it's enough is enough. God used him to make the choices that would bring destruction to his own reign. You know something? I like yelling at you people. (laughs) One can choose to agree with the flesh and be driven by sinful passions and lusts that will devastate our lives. And you see Christians like that. They make choices and they're in this cycle of failure. And they go, how do I get out of it? Start agreeing with God. One can choose to agree with God in prayer resulting in his redemptive work being manifest in their lives and the lives of those around them. See, God is so sovereign. God is so sovereign that he can give each person free choice and be still sovereign. Isn't that amazing? God is so sovereign that he can give everyone his free choice and he's still sovereign. That's where Calvinism gets mixed up. They thought, well, if people have free choice, then how can... So they go, well, man really doesn't have free choice. But they've, instead of exalting God's sovereignty, they've minimized it. They said God can't be sovereign if everybody can choose. So obviously God, has, that nobody can choose. The question is not if God is sovereign, but how is he sovereign? How is God sovereign? God is sovereign through the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, whose redemptive sacrifice was predestined and punctuates all of time, past, present, and future. God is sovereign because Christ overcame sin and the world and the devil. 
He came as the Son of Man, and through his suffering, death, and resurrection, that's how God is sovereign. Matthew 28, 18. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Through his suffering, death, and resurrection, all authority was regained by Jesus. As believers, we need to simply choose to live in the reality of his sovereignty. He's already sovereign. We just need to live in that reality of his sovereignty. You know, we're, you know we know already Satan's already been defeated. It's not a question of how it's going to work out. It's he's been defeated. The world's already been defeated. Sin's already been defeated. But are we going to say, are we going to let his sovereignty be manifest in our lives or not? There's no question as to the ultimate outcome because Jesus Christ was totally victorious at Calvary over the world, devil, and sin. Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Now through Jesus Christ, we can agree with God to see his kingdom come and his will done. The kingdoms of this world will be fully restored to the rightful owner, Jesus Christ, for he is fully victorious and sovereign. And then the seventh angel sounded, and there was a loud voice, loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Remember when one of the temptations, if you'll worship me, you can have all these kingdoms? That was the old bait and switch. But we see in Revelation eleven fifteen when that seventh angel blows that trumpet, all the kingdoms will be restored to the rightful owner. But that sovereignty already took place at Calvary. Just the manifestation will be in Revelation eleven fifteen. Now, there's something very interesting. When I thought about this, remember in the Jericho, God had promised all the land to Abraham. So when they got to Jericho, he had all of the men of Israel march around that city for seven days. He says, don't talk. You know why Jews, when they talk, problems, 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 problems. Just keep quiet. (laughs) Right? You know what they say? Six Jews and there's seven opinions, right? So it's, it's a small country. It's got so many political parties. But anyways, we're not going into that right now. <laughs> so anyways, they march around seven times, right? Every day, one time. The seventh day, they march around seven times. And the seventh time, they blow the trumpets the last time. And they all shout. And the walls fell down. And they took the city. But you know what's interesting about that? It says in Joshua 6.5, And when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat. You know the word shout there in the Hebrew? That word shout is jubilee. Jubilee. You know what jubilee is? The 50th year that whoever lost their inheritance, lost their possessions, because of poverty, because of bad choices, because of whatever, in the 50th year, they would, they would declare jubilee, they would blow the trumpets, declare jubilee, and all the possessions would be restored to the rightful owners. Get that? 
So when Jericho, when they shouted, Jubilee! Everything restored back to the right owners, and Jericho became part of the inheritance that God had for Israel. And Revelation eleven fifteen, when that seventh trumpet blows, it all restored back to the rightful owners, the Son of Man. All that Adam had lost in giving Satan the kingdoms was restored back to the rightful owner, the Son of, Adam, son of Man. Anyways, that's just a tidbit here. Still doing fine? Okay, good. See, my wife, she bought me a really good watch for this purpose. She says I don't really pay attention to it, but she says it's a good watch. (laughs) Through Jesus' victory at Calvary, his sovereignty has been established everywhere, even in the depths of hell, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on the earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." You know, some people have this weird idea that in hell, Satan's there cursing God. That Satan's doing his own thing. That's not what I read. It says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, even those that are under theirs. Even Satan and all his demons will be bowing the knee and worshiping and saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is Lord to God the Father. God's sovereignty is seen everywhere, even in the depths of hell. Therefore, the question is not, is God sovereign, but how is sovereignty will manifest in our lives and what part we will play in terms of seeing God's will done on the earth? God's sovereignty is seen in Pharaoh's life as God raised him up for the very purpose to show his power and bring glory to his name. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Some people fail to recognize, what some people fail to recognize is that Pharaoh still had a choice on how his life would be used to declare God's power and glory. If Pharaoh had chosen to submit to the will of God and obey him and release Israel, then all the world would have heard about how Pharaoh, this great king, acknowledged God's greatness. Israel would have left Egypt with Pharaoh's blessing and Pharaoh and his kingdom would have been blessed by God. Do you realize that? Some people think, well, how, what was it fair to Pharaoh? See, Pharaoh, God said, I've raised you up for this very purpose that my name would be glorified in all the earth. But he had a choice. See, Pharaoh still had a choice of how that would happen. There was another king called Nebuchadnezzar. He wasn't much nicer than Pharaoh. He wasn't much nicer than He was a proud, arrogant king. But there came a time in his life where God humbled him And what he did, he acknowledged there's only one God. He is the one who put me in this position. And he wrote a letter to his entire empire saying there's only one God. So Nebuchadnezzar became a believer. And instead of God's judgment having to continue on him, God's blessing came on him. It could have been the same with Pharaoh. Just because he chose differently doesn't mean he couldn't have. 
He was put in that position for God's glory. That was God's sovereignty. But Pharaoh's choice would determine how that sovereignty would be manifest. Jesus is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. However, only those who call in the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus died for every person, but only those who respond to God and put their faith in Christ will be saved. Therefore, our choices will determine how God's sovereignty will be manifest in each of our lives. Even as believers, some believers, after they receive the Lord, their lives are very fruitful. And other believers, their lives become very sad. In Luke chapter 2, verse 36 to 38, and there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phineal of the tribe of Asher. She was of great age and lived with a husband seven years from her virginity. And this woman was a widow of about 84 years old who did not depart from the temple, but served God with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming in that instant, she gave thanks to the Lord and spoke of him, Jesus, to all who, were look, who looked for the redemption in Jerusalem. In these verses, we observe that the birth of Jesus didn't simply happen. God revealed his will to godly men and women like Simeon and Anna, who dedicated their lives to prayer and interceded in agreement with the will of God for the birth of the Messiah. Many, how many untold others were also praying in agreement with the will of God to see the fulfillment of the prophecies about the Messiah? We don't know their names, but their names are well known in heaven. There were thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands, we don't know, who through the ages continued to pray for the Messiah, continued to pray for the Son of God to come, continued to pray, and as they continued to pray in agreement the will of God, it prepared the way until Jesus was born. Prayer is the first and more, most important thing we can, can do to see the fulfillment of God's will on earth as it is in heaven. Prayer is the difference between seeing God's will done in our lives and failing to see the fulfillment of God's will in our lives. Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In prayer, your will be done on earth as it is done in heaven. We can learn at least three things about this petition. First, God's will is being fully done in heaven because, who's, because God has authority in heaven. Second, God's will is not being fully done on earth. And third, through our prayers, God's will can be done on earth. When we pray, your kingdom come, we are praying that the present day lordship of Jesus Christ will invade our lives now. The connection between earth and heaven is our, is our prayers this is how the present reality of God in heaven becomes a present reality in our lives on the earth. Authority of the earth is not in the hands of Satan or the rulers of the nations, but over Christians who are willing to pray for God's will to be done. The primary way God's sovereign is in our lives is through prayer. The primary way God is sovereign in our lives is through prayer. Why, doesn't God, why does God speak to us prophetically about his will for our lives and for the lives of others? So that we will pray in agreement with his will. I remember when the Lord began to stir me. It was 23 years ago. I've been a believer 40 years now. But 23 years ago, I had an encounter with God 
And I just committed myself to begin to seek him in prayer every day. And I began to spend time before the Lord every day waiting on God. I didn't know. And there were these, all these prophecies about ministry and about all sorts of stuff. I didn't get it. I'm an engineer, right? So engineers, I don't know what. But I just continued to pray and submit to God. And he filled in the blanks. And he added the extra lines. I remember, and so what happens a lot of times is people, God will show them something. But they never pray into it. And they never see it. And they go, I guess that wasn't a prophetic word from God. But it might have been a prophetic word from God. But God wants us to pray. You know, we have, in our church in London now, we have uh, five properties we own now. Five. On the main street of the city. And we got every one of those properties through prophecy, through visions. I remember the very first one, you, you, Todd, you know the story well, and some of you know this, and I won't go into the whole story because it's a whole message in itself, but how, actually, you got your house through a vision from Don Harloff too, didn't you? That guy's pretty good, isn't he? You know, that's why we don't kick him out of the church. He's, he, <laughs> but, but the point is that I remember we were praying for a location the first time. We didn't know where it was. We're, I think we're going to rent a building. We're just going to rent a building, right? And I wanted a small building, a simple building. And the last thing I would do is a churchy building because I'm Jewish. I can't stand that stuff, right? You know what I mean? Like, what's a good Jewish boy doing in a place like this type of thing, you know? And so... We had five people had visions or dreams about that property before we found it. Five. One was 11 years before. One was three weeks before. And this guy, Don, shared that vision with me three weeks before. We were praying, and he saw this. And he described to me in detail the inside of the building. In detail. What's even more remarkable is when we found the building three weeks later, it hadn't even gone up for sale except three days before we found it. But the vision was three weeks before she described it to me in detail. And we came in. Isn't that amazing? So then what happened is a year later, we're, we're having a prayer meeting. Or it's actually, it was just during worship, actually. We were just a service. He gets another vision. And he sees a vision that we are going to own the strip bar three doors down. The most notorious strip bar in the city of London. He sees his vision. And I go, you know, this guy's got a good track record. One out of one. So... So how do you buy a stripper that's whole held, that is, that is owned by someone and the hell's angels are using it to run their drug trade and prostitution out of it? Right? But you know what we did? We prayed. For two years. Prayed for two years. And I remember every time I drive by that building, because right beside our church, I say, one day, Lord, that's going to be ours. In other words, God, I'm agreeing with your will. I don't know how it's going to happen. You don't go up to Hell's Angels, by the way, we're just moving you out. We're just taking over. That's like my joke last night, right, brother? <laughs> you know, but you know what it is? But every time I said, Lord, I just say, I say yes and amen to your will. Yes and amen to your will. And actually, Don had a specific vision of the building that would be on that property eventually. Anyways, two years later comes by. Our church is now starting to fill. And so we get all the men together to seek God's will. And to pray, not to discuss what we should do. And so about 28 men came out that, that time. It was in 2003, June 2003. And we gave everybody a piece of paper and a pen. We give them both. We're a really generous church, as long as they leave it behind afterwards. So anyways, 
And we said, we're going to pray and seek God's will for the direction of the church. We didn't tell him anything about the vision. The only people who knew about it was myself and the elders. Anyways, he said, if God shows you something, write it down. If he doesn't, don't write it down. Don't worry. So we prayed for about an hour, an hour and a half. And, and we had 20, I think 24 submissions. One was, somebody said, I feel we should buy all the land up to, including the strip bar. Because between our church and the strip bar were three other properties. Another person had a vision of a building on the strip bar lands. And he drew a sketch of it. It was what it looked like the guy had two years before. The next day, the city police department, the provincial police, and the federal police did the largest drug bust in the history of the city of London and shut that strip bar down. The next day. Two weeks later, the owner comes to us. It was on a Thursday afternoon. I was at the church. And he comes to the church and he says, could I speak to the pastor? And I said... I'm the pastor, don't I look like a pastor? <laughs> and he goes, well, I own the restaurant. That's what he called the restaurant. And he said, would the church be interested in buying the back parking lot? I said, sure. And he goes, in fact, he said, would you be interested in buying the whole property? It's an acre of land in a 7,000 square foot building. We ended up buying that property. We prayed about it with the elders, and we prayed with Brother Eliezer and Daniel and others. Um, we ended up buying that property for half what he paid for it 16 years before. Well, he had ter- made the area really bad, like prostitutes everywhere and stuff. But anyways, so we ended up getting that two years later. But then the Lord showed us we're going to get the other three properties in between ours. But you know, the situation was, as we were praying about it, we, the Lord showed us we're not allowed to approach any of those three owners. And we're going to get all three properties together. So you know what I did? We prayed for another Four more years. Four more years. And every Wednesday, we have a six o'clock Wednesday morning prayer meeting. We have windows on one side, and you can see one of those buildings from the roof of one of the buildings. And every Wednesday morning, I would say to the Lord, Lord, one day that's going to be ours. One day that's going to be ours. And I prayed for that for four years. Myself, you know, four years. Four years ago. But once in a while, one of the buildings go for sale and said, well, maybe we should approach them. And the Lord, we'd pray and said, no, Lord, said, no, wait. I said, okay, four years go by, and another building goes for sale. And we pray again, the Lord says, no, and it sells. I think, wow, I was really discouraged. I know you never get discouraged, but I got discouraged. I thought, God, did I miss you? Did I miss what your will was? And I prayed about it, and I thought, no, we really sought you, and you told us not to. Anyways, a couple weeks later, I'm at the church. It was on a Friday morning, I remember that, and uh, this Guy comes into the church and says, could I speak to the pastor? And I said, uh, I'm the pastor, John. I look like a pastor. And he goes, I'm a real estate agent. I represent the lady that, that had purchased that home or that building. And she's willing to sell it to the church. It turned out that she used to go to our Bible study. She's a Christian. And he said, I've approached the other two owners, and all three properties are willing to sell to the church. So we bought all three properties with three different owners, and we didn't approach anybody. So now we have over two acres of land right in the middle of the city, right on the main road of the city. Now, I won't go into all the other things, but what I'm pointing out, but if we had not prayed, if we had not prayed, we would never have seen that fulfilled. We said, well, those visions weren't right. But I would pray and seek God. And so the way I pray... I'm very simple, right? I'm a simple person, and I like to pray simply. Instead of being very complicated, 
I get up every morning. You know, you know how I feel? I get up really early in the morning. You know how I feel when I get up early in the morning? I feel very tired. I feel very <laughs> tired. Yep, yeah, I feel tired. I feel like not getting up, okay? Like, I'm just being honest with you. Like, I think you think, I'm just, okay, Lord, I'm ready to serve you now. I'm saying, okay, let me get a bed. I pull this out, and I roll over and try to make my, work my way into the living room. And, and, and this is my, my, how I pray every morning. I've been doing this for 23 years. I'll get up early in the morning, and what I do is I spend some time in the Word. Spend time in the Word because I want to get my mind on the Lord. And then I'll begin to worship God. I'll be praying in tongues and praying in English. And I'll just be thanking him for his faith. I thank him for his salvation. I'm thanking him that 40 years ago he saved me. So I'm spending a time just worshiping God, saying you are sovereign, you are wonderful, you are loving. Praise you, Father. Praise to your son, Jesus. And I'm praying in tongues and I'm praying in English. And I'll do this for maybe 20 minutes or a half hour. Just worshiping God. And then my prayers are very simple. So I saying, okay, Lord, could you do this and, and make sure you talk to that person? And No, no. A lot of it is I'll say, your will be done. Your will be done. Or I'll say, there's somebody needs healing. Lord, touch that person. But I'm focusing on the Lord. Lord, touch their lives. Bring forth your healings. I pray for signs and wonders and miracles. I pray that you would move. And then I, as different situations come, I just worship God. And I just lift those up before him. I say, God, just move in this situation. And I'll just continue to do that. And you know something? Every day, every day, I pray for signs and wonders and miracles and healings to confirm the preaching and teaching of his word every day. And I've been doing it for decades, and I'm not tired of it because I know he's hearing me. I know he's hearing me. And so I don't do it and focus on my problems. I focus on his sovereignty, and I begin to spend time worshiping him. And just whatever things come to my heart, praying for different people, praying for marriages, praying for, for, for healing, praying for God's will, for praying for send out the labors, praying for worldwide outreach, all the things I just keep worshiping God, and I just keep coming before him. Sometimes I'll just say, not my will be done, but your will be done. Or sometimes I'll say, your kingdom come, your kingdom come. I praise you, Lord, let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as is done in heaven. And I'll just pray that out, and I'll spend time worshiping him and declaring that over and over again, just knowing that I'm, he's hearing me, and I'm agreeing with his will. And then sometimes there'll be specific people or specific situations. So I'll just spend time. And you know, Paul said something very interesting in prayer. He says, I make mention of you in my prayer. Sometimes we make things that we have to spend a lot of effort into something. But sometimes we can just mention that. As I'm spending time worshiping God, and I'll just mention, Lord, I just mentioned this brother right now that you would help him in his need. And I mentioned this other person. And I'll just mention their names and just mention their needs and just keep going forward. But there's other times there's things that God just wants you to park on. He just wants you to park on it and just spend time worshiping God, praising him, just lifting up before him. And when you do, you have become a conduit for the will of God. You have become a conduit for God's will being done in your life. I've been doing that for 23 years now. Many Christians don't pray because they don't see the power of prayer. We're going to stop the PowerPoint because I'm going to skip a few, few points here. I talked about last week being naturally minded, 
carnally minded or spiritually minded. The carnally minded person from first, uh, 2 Corinthians 2 doesn't value the spiritual things because they're spiritually discerned. We can be naturally minded Christians. The naturally minded person doesn't pray much because he sees little value in prayer and would rather be engaged in activities that appear more practical. There are, there are Christians who are in ministry that don't pray much, but they think, well, it's more important to do outreach. It's more important to do this. Those are all very important, but they see little value in prayer because they're naturally minded, because it looks much more useful to actually do things than to pray. But prayer is much more important. Those things are important too, but if you don't pray, then you're doing it in self-effort. The other thing is, the carnally-minded Christian doesn't pray much because they want to see instant results. Carnally-minded, impulsive people. So I prayed and nothing happened. And so they don't see God's will done because they're not saying, I'm willing to pray for a day or a week or a month or decades. You know, there's every revival ever recorded in history, whether in the, in the church, in, 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 in the, in, in the uh, Bible, or in history, church history, always began with people who dedicated themselves in prayer. Always. And so you know something? I'm continuing to pray for that. I'm continuing to pray for that. And I don't weary because I'm, I know that God is hearing me, and I know that God is working behind the scenes. I know it. It's not like you keep praying until God finally decides to do something. Remember Daniel? He says in, he was in Daniel 10, 12. Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humble yourself before God, your words have been heard and have come because of your words. From the very first day, from the very first day, so I don't get tired whether I have to pray for a day or a week or a month or decades. And I continue to pray for revival, not just for our church, but for the body of Christ. And you know something? As I do that, I'm co-laboring with Christ because I'm choosing to agree because we have that authority to agree with God to see his will done on earth as it's already being done in heaven. And so I just encourage all of you to just say, you know something? I'm going to spend every day just agreeing. And you don't have to. Sometimes we just don't even know exactly what we need. You ever get overwhelmed? Or am I the only person? You know, I get overwhelmed sometimes. When I get overwhelmed, I just spend time worshiping God. And I say, God, I just pray that you'll invade this situation. I pray, God, that you would move and, and, and just bring it about. I'm not even sure how it's supposed to look. I'm not even sure what the resu- results are. But I pray, God, that you would move, that your will be, would be done in this situation. And sometimes I don't even know what to pray, except I just pray for his will. And when I'm doing that... That is giving God authority to move in my life and authority to move in the situations I'm praying for. You know, nowadays, you know, Muslims are coming to the Lord by hundreds of thousands, by millions. There's over a million Muslims that have come to Christ um, through visions and, and dreams that have never heard the gospel before. Why is it now that places like Saudi Arabia and Iran, places that have never been open to the gospel, they're having visions and dreams of Jesus? It's because Christians are praying and God is using those prayers to open up those Muslims to Christ. I'm absolutely convinced of that. And if we're praying, we're part of that. Anyways, I just want to stop here now. My wife always tells me I talk too long. so She goes, what? <laughs> yeah. Anybody want to help me with my marriage counseling on this after the service? <laughs> Anyways, we want to just close in prayer, but I just want to challenge you that you would pray for not only this local church, but pray for your city 
and pray for the unity of the body of Christ in the city and around the world because that's the most important thing I can do. The most important thing as a, the most important thing in my ministry, there's three things I do in my church. Number one is I pray. Number two is I share the word of God. And number three is I greet people and try to be friendly. Those are three things I do. But prayer is number one. And it's so amazing that when you pray, what God does. And you know, one of the weaknesses amongst Christians is prayer. And it's because they haven't answered the question right, why do we pray? But when they realize why we should pray, it will put a stirring in your heart to be committed to spending your life in prayer. You know, when I, when I drive the car, I just try to be in prayer. Anyways, Father, I just thank you, Lord. You know our needs. You know our weaknesses. You know those areas where we need to be changed. You know those areas I need to be changed, Lord. But I thank you, Lord, that you're attentive to our prayers, that you're faithful to answer us, Lord. And I pray for new covenant here, Lord. I pray for the city of Stillwater, for every church you've planted in the city, that you'd bring unity to the city, to the different churches, that you'd bring forth your glory. Pray for signs and wonders and miracles and healings. Pray for the nine gifts of the Spirit to move through your body, Lord. Pray for holiness, Father. I pray for a great outpouring of the Spirit to see hundreds of thousands saved in this whole area, Lord. I pray, Father, for you to move through this state, Lord. Oh, God, we turn to you, Lord. Pray for a great harvest of souls. Send forth those labors. A great harvest of souls. Yes, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen.